Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, as well as descriptions of childhood abuse, which may be triggering to some people. Please use discretion when listening. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Gaslighting doesn't just make you question the event itself. Mm -mm. It makes you question Everything. Correct. And when I think about that, when, when you sort of go, wow, how we minimize this psychological and emotional abuse as though it's not that damaging, it's like he went into my psyche and extracted pieces of me mm -hmm. that I, to this day, feel like I will never get back. Growing up with a toxic, narcissistically abusive parent is like living with unexploded bombs. You never know what will set them off, and children in these homes tiptoe through their childhoods. This is made even worse when none of the adults in the home step in and protect the children, and instead double down and continue to gaslight children who are already confused, scared, and blaming themselves. Today, we are going to hear from Dr. Ingrid Clayton, a psychologist who is a survivor of complex post-traumatic stress originating from narcissistic abuse. Hers is a story of childhood narcissistic abuse, familial gaslighting, the impacts on her adult life and relationships, and how these stories can end up. Ingrid has written a powerful memoir entitled Believing Me, Healing from Narcissistic Abuse and Complex Trauma. And her book is a reminder that sometimes one person's story can remind us 
that one is often the story of many. In this first episode, we will be hearing about Ingrid's abusive childhood and how the toxic dynamics in her childhood home magnified the challenges of her transitions in late adolescence into adulthood. What a pleasure. We have Dr. Ingrid Clayton here, who, I mean, your book, I have to say you've written a memoir called Believing Me. Ingrid, you know a lot of people come to me with books. Can you read my book? Can you read a blurb for my book? That could be a full-time job for me, (laughs) except it doesn't pay. So when you asked, it was, I'm like, this is somebody who lives in my town who is a fellow professional. I get the cup of tea, sit on the couch, and I start reading. Three hours later, had Mm. not left my position. I am not fussy about much. I am fussy about books and writing. And Mm. I mean, it was unbelievable. Everyone needs to go out and read this book. And if you've had any form of trauma, especially childhood relational trauma in your life, you have to read this book because the amount of empathy in those pages was overwhelming. But as a clinician, the clarity of your story, it was like, what? She's mm. just, because I'd be like, okay, is this person? Nope, there it is. Oh, there's that. There's that. There's that. Wow. And I just was thinking, this is amazing. So here we get, all of you get the pleasure I got. First of all, you got to read her book and we'll, you know, be information here on the show notes on how to get that book. But, you know, Ingrid, I'd like to just start with your story and let's start at the top. Can you tell us? about yourself and where you're from and unspool some of that story for us. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a little surreal, to be honest, to be here with you. I followed your work and the gifts that you give to so many survivors. You are really, to me, the expert in the field. And I was taking a gamble sending you my story. There's this part of me, actually the little girl part of me, that I'm very proud of her for going to the expert Mm. in the field in narcissistic abuse because even though I wrote it with such honesty and vulnerability, there's the part of me that goes, was it narcissistic abuse? Am I still making it up right? I still Mm -hmm. suffer from that self-gaslighting after having grown up in gaslighting. And it wouldn't have surprised me if you had written back and said, well, Ingrid, let's talk about what you've written here. And in fact, you had the opposite take. And so what you so freely offer so many people in all of the venues in terms of validation you have given to me personally, and it's a gift I can quite frankly never repay. So thank you for having me here. I so appreciate it. Again, I can't stress enough. I almost think every clinician should read this book. Mm. Even more important than survivors, Mm. if clinicians could read this book and say, this is what this looks like. That's right. And that's really why I wrote it. So. I always knew that I grew up in a dysfunctional home. I knew I grew up in an alcoholic home. I had that language. Mm -hmm. I went on to become an alcoholic myself. I got sober, eventually went back to school, got three degrees in psychology, became a private practice clinician. And yet I didn't know that my experience was really a classic telling of narcissistic Hmm. abuse. I never had that language. Not only that, but I became a trauma therapist Mm -hmm. specializing in trauma because of this gaslighting that I just spoke to and the minimization that comes with that. Mm. Well, this wasn't real trauma. I also couldn't see myself as a trauma survivor. And without that language, I stayed stuck almost like I was on this hamster wheel for decades, Mm -hmm. doing the same things, engaging in the same dysfunctional relationships, and yet trying so hard, asking asking the questions, going to talk therapy. Many therapists over the years, I didn't forget my story. I knew what happened. I shared it. No one ever gave me the language of narcissism. Mm. No one ever gave me 
the language of trauma. And because it's my story, my lived experience, it was very hard for me to apply those terms until my stepfather died. He is the narcissist. And just him not being on this earth anymore, something was freer in me than it had ever been my whole life. I felt safer in the world, mm-hmm. literally. And then I was called to write my story in a way that I didn't even know what I was writing for many years. Mm-hmm. And I could look back at my own story in black and white from a clinician's lens and go, this is complex trauma. Yeah. This is the traumatic experiences. These are my trauma responses unhealed that mm-hmm. I've lived with for so long. And then this is what healing looks like. And I finally made sense to myself, I think for the first time ever. And so if I'm walking around with these degrees and this clinical information and years of training mm-hmm. and trauma, mm-hmm. and I couldn't see that I had complex PTSD, unresolved complex trauma Mm -hmm. that originated from narcissistic abuse, how many people are walking around not knowing? And similarly, going to three 12-step programs, showing up to personal therapy, going on the retreats, trying to be spiritual. I did all the things, you know? Mm -hmm. I did all the things, and none of them gave me this lens and this language to help me finally feel like I'm not broken. Right. I love how you position that, that I have complex trauma that originated from narcissistic abuse. That's mm. actually more elegantly put than I've heard anyone ever say it mm. before. That's what's getting sort of missed, is that that becomes the origination point, that the narcissistic dynamics are mm-hmm. what drives the complex trauma, be- mm-hmm. and it is the, the upside down is the confusion. And not only can't you not escape physically, you can't escape mentally, mm-hmm. and that it's not viewed as trauma. like it's, And it's often viewed as, well, this is just how relationships are, and families are complicated. That's right. And that's what a lot of people face. And so... Once you give language to it, you can start, again, lifting that self-blame, seeing it more Mm -hmm. clearly. It's not an instant heal, but it allows you to lift your head long enough to do the work. So can you then, for listeners, lay out the story? Like, just sort of, I know it's a complicated story, Mm. and obviously the details, they really do need to read the book. But, you know, starting with how your mother and father, your early childhood, Mm -hmm. your mother and father divorced, and that led to your mom remarrying, and then your stepdad. If you could just lay out that story for us, what those experiences were like, and as you also highlighted that you grew up in an alcoholic household Mm -hmm. and how all that played a role in this. So I was about 12, maybe 11, I guess, when my parents divorced. And pretty immediately after they split, my mom was living with Randy, who is my stepdad. Mm -hmm. And he had been in my life my whole life because he was my dad's best friend. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how they knew each other. So I had some familiarity with him. But the way that I experienced it is that Almost when he moved in, even though my mom was there and she was still present, it was as though I saw her step into his shadow where she didn't say something unless he had already endorsed it or said it before. Mm -hmm. It was almost like I could see her body moving only when she had permission by him to move it. I literally lost my mom to this (laughs) man even when she was standing three feet In front of me. And so that was so painful and so confusing. And then couple that with their alcoholism, daily drinkers, and just the instability and confusion around that. I knew that something was off. I knew that something was wrong. I thought really it was related to the drugs and alcohol. And so I became this detective. Uh, Mm -hmm. I would 
look, you know, where are things hidden and what else do I not know? And I was constantly trying to figure things out. Now I know it's hypervigilance. And so I was trying to seek safety through a sense of knowing what was going on. There was not enough information to gather. I could feel that there were lies and secrets and sort of smoke screens. I felt like I know my stepdad has a colored past, but I'd only get little bits and pieces dropped in. And one of the stories I share in the book is that this this man called our house one night. My parents were at the bar, and I answered the phone, and I hear, is Ben Weber there? Like, like a kid making, like, a crank phone call. And I was like, well, no, you must have the wrong number. Is Ben Weber there? It was so creepy, and I was like, you have the wrong number. And then he went into a normal voice, and he said, how about Randy? Is he there? And I was like, whoa, what is going on? So the next morning, I say to my stepdad, this creepy guy called. He Then he asked for you, and he said to ask you who Ben Weber is. And as though we were talking about just the most normal thing, he said, oh, well, when I uh, took John to Florida— which is his youngest son. And by took him to Florida, it means he abducted his own son when he was four years old and lived under this assumed name of Ben Weber for almost three years. So he tells me this story as though he's telling me, would you like some orange juice? And I'm looking to my mom like, this sounds horrible. Like, he stole John mm, away, mm. and they lived in another state, and he mm-hmm. had an assumed name. The way he said it was, that's when I was on the lamb. I was like, on the lamb, like, sounds like Mm. some big adventure. So there were all of these, this combination of all of these things. I didn't know what was up, what was down. I knew my home situation was different than other people. And then I started to feel what I now have the language for. I did not have the language for then, which was this grooming behavior of just flirtatiousness and... Really, I I see you, and you're such a talented singer, and really propping me up in these ways that were really important to me and that really mattered. Mm-hmm. And then he would just rip it all away mm-hmm. and start giving me the silent treatment for no reason. And I didn't even have the language of the silent treatment. Mm-hmm. I was just like, mm-hmm. why? I, it's like I don't exist in my own home. I literally felt like a ghost. It was so lonely. And we lived in the mountains in the middle kind of of nowhere in Colorado. So it's like you're out in the middle of nowhere. You don't even exist in your own home. And this cycle started to play out where largely it's like he detests me. I get in trouble for just the tiniest things. And then the punishments were really steep. It's like you're grounded for months at a time. You're under his thumb all the time. And then out of the blue, there's I'd like to take you to lunch, Mm. taking me to this wonderful lunch in town, just he and I, picking me up on a school day. Let's go buy some jewelry across the street. These gifts would start to come. And I remember feeling, I can see myself in that restaurant. It's as though I go from this black and white version of myself into color. Mm-hmm. Like, I I actually exist for the first time, and I know in my then 16-year-old, 15-year-old brain, that he's manipulating me. I know that he's still an asshole. I know this isn't going to last, and I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Mm. I will do whatever it takes to stay in his good graces for as long as I possibly can because the alternative is so much worse. Of course, yes. 
Ingrid highlights such a key dynamic here, this idea of, I will do what I need to do to keep a good moment going, to avoid a bad moment, to be on their good side. This is such a complex dynamic. Partly, it's done to avoid the rages and the passive aggression and the cruelty, but partly, it's done to stay in something that feels good for a minute. Regardless of the kind of relationship it is, this shape-shifting or even giving in in any way can be to avoid the bad stuff and to extend what feels like a good moment. And all of that makes these relationships horribly confusing. It contributes not only to the anxiety and unpredictability, but also to a sense of shame in some survivors that they did go along with what the narcissistic person wanted. But survivors are often unable to see this as a survival mechanism. In that, what I learned to tolerate, <laughs> the imprinting of trauma bonding mm-hmm. that was just mm-hmm. this lived experience of, I know how to navigate this kind of chaos, was woven yeah. into the fabric of my being in such a way that it didn't matter how far away I moved or mm-hmm. how much, you know, quote-unquote work I had done on myself, I couldn't override my own body. Mm-mm. I couldn't override my own conditioning. I kept repeating this trauma reenactment over and over with primarily these romantic partners, unavailable men, actively addicted men, married men, these really toxic dynamics that I didn't see coming, and yet I'd go, Mm -hmm, why mm -hmm. am I in this relationship again? Why can't Mm -hmm. I have a healthy relationship? I'm working so hard Mm -hmm. on myself, and this is the thing I literally said to therapists. What is going on? And maybe we would talk about my story, but it never made the change in me that Mm -hmm. needed to happen And I'm heartbroken about that. So when you say this is for clinicians, I go, yes, I want every therapist, every coach. I want it in grad schools. Mm -hmm. No one was talking to me in grad school Mm -hmm. about narcissistic abuse, about gaslighting, about trauma bonding. These are terms that I learned on Instagram. I mean, what a shame that is. What's so powerful, you use this term grooming, right? It's something that's come up over and over again as we've talked to people. Mm. And... What was so troubling in your story was it was what we can only call intrafamilial grooming. Like mm-hmm. it was it was interesting because your family life was like you said, it was dysfunctional, it was lacking, you were lonely, you were isolated. Mm-hmm. Those are prime conditions for someone outside of a family to groom someone, mm, right? Mm. So somebody would sense this person is a little isolated. They'd see a, a young person, oh, you know, compliment them on the thing that, you know, what a groomers emulate. They right. learn what matters. And then they take advantage of that situation. Mm. In your case, yeah. your groomer was not only creating the emptiness and the fear and the desolation, but then was becoming the sort of the the validation and the admiration that the groomer does. I mean, to me, there is no more toxic dynamic, which is why the intrafamilial grooming, the Mm. intrafamilial abuse is so much more toxic because it's the same person engaging in both patterns, and which I think makes the trauma bond That's all right. the more profound. That's right. And I want to go back and ask you a question that I, I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. 
You were 11, 12 when your parents divorced. Right. And you said that when your mother got into the second marriage, it was as though she didn't even see you anymore. She was only oriented mm-hmm. towards your stepfather. Mm-hmm. Was that her behavior when she was married to your father as well? Was she similar? Did she behave similarly in her original marriage with your biological father? There was a difference, but it's hard for me to say because I was even so much younger then. Oh, and I so see, I see. My memories of childhood, you know, I'm very aware that there was bongs and weed all over the okay, house and lots of drinking and the rock and roll and parties across the street at the neighbors where my parents and all their friends are naked and skinny dipping. Okay. and Right, so there was that sort of an atmosphere. But I feel like the way I've seen it is almost like my mom and my dad are kind of the same person <laughs> in their codependent tendencies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, both active alcoholics, both kind of wanting to be taken care of. Interesting. And I think mm-hmm. that's in part why they didn't last, you know? Oh, that is, that's actually really interesting. You know, I rarely get to talk to somebody who's married to two parents who had codependent characteristics. It's usually the codependent parent and the abusive parent. Mm-hmm. But to have both is actually a pretty interesting, unique and honestly troubling mm-hmm. combination because honestly nobody's minding the store then. That's you right. You know, they're so mired in their own stuff. That's and right. so your mother breaks out of this and actually finds a, the new relationship she's in, which it sounds like it happened pretty quickly. Yeah. And there likely was some sense of betrayal that your father experienced oh, because yes. this is his best friend. Oh, yes. May I only bring this up because that's the backdrop to this, right? Betrayal starting to almost get normalized in a strange way. Oh, that, yes. That's just sort of part of a relational story. It takes me to my next question. As you're getting older, mm-hmm. your stepfather, he's issuing these draconian, severe punishments grounded for months and all of that. Where is your mother in all of this? Because you're her biological child. Right, that's right. right. And that you would think that there'd be some primacy in that. And yet he is coming in and taking in this rather severe role. Mm-hmm. Where is she in all this? Is she just signing off on this? Is she saying nothing? Like, what was her function she in all nothing. this? She says nothing. She says nothing. She's mm-hmm. largely not there for these mm-hmm. conversations. If she's there, she's so far in the background. Understood. I mean, mm-hmm. we just know that she doesn't have a voice. So mm-hmm. at a certain point, I stop looking over to her to get eye contact and go, are you tracking this? Because I know it's pointless. Got it. Yeah. Right there, though, I'm looking at her to get eye contact to see if she's tracking it. That loss of a mirror. Oh, that yeah. idea that there's somebody else there. Because we know, we know that when people are experiencing narcissistic abuse and invalidation and these patterns in the family, sometimes it just takes one pair of eyes on you, mm-hmm. even if they're not empowered enough to intervene. Mm-hmm. But that mirror that you're valid, I see you, mm-hmm. I see what's happening, mm-hmm. is actually can be really restorative for people. Mm-hmm. You didn't have that. And I don't think that's an uncommon experience yeah. for survivors. Well, well, I had it maybe once every, I don't know how many years. Oh, I would count. see a glimpse. She would say, we got to get out of here. And I'd mm, say, yes, let's do this. We can do this. And it would last, you know, for 45 minutes. Mm. And then the next day, it's like, no, that was a ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. So I had these glimpses that she was in there, which mm-hmm. I think in a way is what endeared me. It was like the tiniest bit of connection. Yeah. It was enough for me to feel connected mm-hmm. to her that I knew that she was under a spell. Right. And right. and I just kept waiting. Like, when is she when is she going to come out of this? Mm-hmm. What's troubling is that you now know you, you're calling it a spell, right? She didn't do the work. She didn't go into therapy, but mm-hmm. she's also a parent. Mm-hmm. And I guess I have to own my own stuff here in that mm-hmm. 
I get really angry because I feel like once parenthood enters a person's life, there is a level of responsibility. It's like you need to figure your stuff out mm-hmm. because this is how the intergenerational cycles persist. My session with Ingrid will continue after this break. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So time is going on. He's mm-hmm. going back and forth. Mm-hmm. He's, you're a great singer. Mm-hmm. You're a special person. Let's mm-hmm. go to lunch. Mm-hmm. And then loneliness, desolation, rage, punishments, right. back and forth. You nailed it, Ingrid. That's the trauma bond. Mm-hmm. That's where it begins. Mm-hmm. But it seems like things then started to escalate. And in your book, yes. you talk about a trip. Could you share that? Because I think that was a real turning point in mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. So my mom, who rarely traveled alone and really had a life outside of their relationship, her father, my grandfather, became really ill, and she had to leave and go and be with them to help out. So for the first time maybe ever, we were really in the house without her. And this is pre-cell phones and constant contact with folks. She was gone. She was out of the house. So one night, my stepdad comes back to my room, like a Wednesday, random Wednesday, and he's standing in my doorframe, and he says, hey, how do you like to go to Vegas? Mm. I don't even know what he's talking about. Like, he knows I want to be a musician. Sure, maybe I want to go to New York, L.A., okay, Vegas. And so I just said, yeah, I'd like to go there someday. And he goes, no, this weekend. Do you want to go to Vegas this weekend? And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, obviously, as a singer, you want to witness that sort of professionalism. And he was also a musician, pianist, singer, so he really used that Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. a way to connect with me. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, listen, 
A friend of mine gave me free tickets. It's no big deal. You know, if you don't want to go, I'll take John. And John is his biological son, the golden child, the one that always gets everything when my brother Josh and I seem to get the breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, I don't want him to take John. (laughs) You know, Mm. I want to go. But he said, but you can't. You can't tell anyone about it. You know, the boys will be jealous. I can only take one of you. But again, if you don't want to go. So I was like, oh, I mean, I could just feel the bind. Keeping secrets is such a classical part of all kinds of abusive family systems. It is one of the many mechanisms by which a bond with an abuser evolves. Here, he is asking Ingrid to keep a secret from her brothers and asking her to keep secrets becomes one more way to not only groom her, but also control her. And yet again, like I said, sitting at that table at the restaurant, when you go from being iced out to not literally existing in your own home to now somebody wants to take you on a trip, Yeah. Mm-hmm. there's no not going. Right. <laughs> there's no yep. not going. And mm-hmm. so I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And he's like, great, pack your bags Leave them hidden. I'll come back and get the luggage tomorrow after I've dropped you all at school. So he leaves, and I am just pins and needles. I'm like, what does one bring to Vegas? You know, I'm like, I know nothing about this, but there is this excitement. There is this like, I wonder what could happen in Vegas, you know. And I pack. I try to go to bed. I can't sleep. This adrenaline is coursing through me. There's fear. So... I pick up the phone. And again, this is pre-cell phones, right? So you have one landline for a house. And I knew that there were times that he would be listening on the other end when I was on the phone. So I'm terrified that he's going to know that I'm on the phone. He's going to pick it up and hear it. But I call his eldest son, who doesn't live with us but lives nearby. And I say, Sean, dad wants to take me to Vegas this weekend and not tell anyone about it. And he's like, that son of a bitch. Like, he knew who his dad was. And so we were talking about the reality. We weren't sugarcoating it. But at the same time, we're both caught in that maybe maybe it is just a fun trip. And maybe he doesn't want the boys to be jealous. And it's almost like when you're so used to just living for these moments, you go, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I'm just going to take it and hope that I get through unscathed. Mm -hmm. And so we just sort of joined in that thinking, except he said— I'm going to get you the phone number of some people in Vegas, some friends of his, so that I had someone locally to call. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't care if it's the middle of the night. If you call me, I will get in the car from Colorado, and Mm -hmm. I will drive to come Mm -hmm. and get you. So I was like, okay, all right, you know, I'm going to do this thing. And so are we really going to do this? I don't know. And we were sitting on the plane when he said, listen, this trip is costing me a fortune, so I only got us one hotel room. And Mm. I can feel, even in this moment, the seatbelt just strapping me in, you know. And I was like, okay. And so suddenly I'm thinking about Ben Weber and taking John away for almost three years. Mm -hmm. And this other story that I know about him where his second wife, because my mom was his third, I knew that she was really young, and I think she was about my age, and he was older Mm. when they got married. And I'm going, Vegas and marriage and— on the lamb and all these things. And I'm going, this trip cost you a fortune. You told me you got free tickets, mm-hmm. right? So That's his right. lies are already not matching up. Mm-hmm. And so he takes me on this weekend where the whole time I'm just 
I'm doing exactly what Sean and I said I would do, which is I'm going to show up and I'm just going to try to make the best of it that I can. He said, I have to take you shopping. You got to dress more sophisticated in Vegas. So he's kind of dressing me up. Yeah. He said, you have to hold my hand everywhere you go because minors aren't allowed in casinos and you could get kicked out and I could get arrested or get in trouble. And I'm going, I don't know what the rules are. I know he's lying, but I don't know what the truth is. Mm -hmm, And there's no mm -hmm. way for me to find out. So here I am holding his hand in these casinos, dressing in clothes that they made me feel older. They made me feel more sophisticated. And we were there all weekend. See, the part of me that knew that he was manipulating and the part of me that knew that he was grandiose and that he needed all the praise, Mm -hmm. I was going to play into that. And I said, this trip is amazing that you're giving me. Like, this could change my life. You're going to expose me to all these things. So I don't understand why I can't tell anyone about it. So I was trying to Mm -hmm. get him to go, yes, of course, I want to share how amazing this is. And he said all right, listen, I'll tell the family, but you have to let me do it my way. Hmm. So he gave me just enough, right? And then we went on this trip, and there's all kinds of details surrounding this in the story itself, but eventually we came home. No one ever knew. I'm holding it as the secret. Did it even really happen? Did he really parade me around what felt like a girlfriend? He never called me a girlfriend. Maybe he he didn't try to sleep with me. Mm -hmm. He got us a suite, with a huge bed with mirrors on the ceiling. The stage was set. The stage was set, and I could feel it. But essentially, he didn't physically assault me Mm -hmm, that weekend. mm -hmm. And in my mind, it went, if he didn't physically assault me, was it really that bad? I mean, he took me Mm -hmm, to Vegas. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's the big deal? And so here's where these, you know, mixed messages and experiences are sort of lodged in my brain where I don't, again, don't know what end is up. I don't know what's mostly true. I know what I felt. I know the terror in my body. I know I didn't feel safe. My intuition is that he didn't want to assault me. He wanted me to want him. Mm -hmm, And if mm -hmm. he gave me enough and set the stage in this way, I just might. And that was never in a million years going to happen. And so when it didn't, it would flip again where I don't exist. You're dead to me. He couldn't tolerate that I didn't see him that way and give him all the praise and the glory and the love that he wanted Mm -hmm. me to. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting because there's an infantile quality to grandiosity, right? And what grandiosity does and we see this narcissistic dynamic, it, it literally glosses away any form of reason. Mm. Even if we distance from, and I can't imagine distancing from, this is a child. Right. This is exploitative. Mm. This is abusive. Mm. This is a violation of trust. Even though that this is, this is my wife's daughter. The wrongs were so piled up, like I, we can't even list them all. Yeah. But the grandiosity, again, in the infantile nature of it is, I have a little fantasy here, mm-hmm. and I want to hear that my my little fantasy can come true. Infantilizes is the word that keeps coming to my mind, yes. and grandiosity by its nature is, right. right? It's the child putting a Superman cape on. Right. You know, it's charming when a person's five. It ceases to be charming a little bit after that. And so mm-hmm. that's the, the struggle here and the absolute terror that it had put you in. And you use the word breadcrumb, and talk about breadcrumbing is that in trying to sort of get a special experience, 
experience mm-hmm. out of your your young life. You were an adolescent at that point, but trying to get a special experience. And this is so classical in these families. You have to endure so much discomfort. That's right. Just to pull a tiny bit of what we even think could be joy. Right. And it wasn't even joyful. That's you right. You were in this absolutely tense, clenched experience. Yes. But it's as though at least this is the only way I could see something new or something different mm-hmm. or get exposed to music. This part of your book was so affecting for me when I read the part in Vegas because I felt myself clenching up. I'm like, mm-hmm. this son of a bitch is going to harm her, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I mean, the rage that's boiling up mm-hmm. in me. So I'm feeling that tension as a reader. Mm-hmm. And what and then when I put that part of the book down, I thought, what this 16-year-old girl felt being brought into the setting thinking, there is only one thing that's going to happen here. That's right. And I don't even know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. The terror, and that this is what these are, childhoods of terror. That's right. You know, even though he did not physically assault you, you were being assaulted. Every sense in your body that's right. was being assaulted. That's right. The fear your brain doesn't know from fear from real, right? That's right. Your brain was reacting as though the real terrible thing was happening. That's right. Over and over, over and any over minute, any mm-hmm. minute. Mm-hmm. And that's what I carried with me for so long next to a story that was saying, but it wasn't that bad. Yes. And so when you think about mm-hmm. complex trauma and the fragmentation that mm-hmm. we live in, this compartmentalization yep. that we live in, this disconnect from self is so profound. And yet you can see how... That was created by design in all of those moments. Correct. And the justification. Like, well, maybe that wasn't what happened, right? That justification is the core element of the trauma bonding experience. Mm. I'm going to find things, well, I wasn't assaulted. Right. This happened, or maybe it wasn't this, and na-na-na-na. Even when there's inconsistencies, it goes back to that cognitive dissonance. None of the pieces fit. Right. So we're going to tell ourselves a story to make it fit. Yep. Now, after Las Vegas... Dynamics changed in your relationship. You come back. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows except Sean, in essence. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I did tell my best friend, but that was it. That they were the two people that knew. Right. Mm-hmm. But above all else, your mother didn't know. As far as I knew, I mean, Randy said he was going to tell her, but she never brought it up to me, and we never talked about it. Right. So I assumed that. All right. She so did not know. things changed. Okay. Yes, yes. And the dynamics in the relationship changed. And so what would you say, just even briefly, mm-hmm. where was the shift after Vegas? So it largely went back to the silent treatment, and I didn't mm. exist, except one time when I was walking through his room, he said, hey, can we talk? And he sat me down on his bed <laughs> in their bedroom. My mom wasn't there. I don't know where she was. And he admitted to me, actually. He said, listen, I have so much love for you. And I know it's not the love that I should have for a stepdaughter. Mm. And when I am feeling that love and I want to give you the world, you know, it's when I treat you whatever. Like he was basically laying out, I know exactly what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. And then the guilt gets too big and I have to shut it down. And I basically have to give you the silent treatment. And I'm sitting there. It's such a weird experience because I'm like, he knows that this is what he's doing. It didn't occur to me that Mm. he could say it so succinctly, that Mm -hmm. he had that much consciousness around it. And in the consciousness, there's a little bit of hope. I'm like, is he telling me that he's going to like go and get some help mm, and, yeah. and figure this out? Yeah. And he doesn't, in fact, do that. What he's using this information to do, initially it felt like a confession. My body knows it's coercion. 
I want you to see how much I suffer in my yeah, love for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And I said to him, I am glad that you're talking about it. I'm probably not the most appropriate person to tell. It's remarkable to me that you had the presence of mind to respond like It is that. remarkable to me, to be honest, because what I was feeling was just rage. I'm sure, just uh, yeah, rage. I'm, yes. Yeah. And then when I said that, it's like everything he just told me played out on his face. He went from loving me to mm-hmm. hating me mm-hmm. to you don't exist, and he just stormed out of the room and walked away. And in Ingrid also, he's talking about these emotional states he's having about you as though any of this is appropriate. Right. Any of this should be shared anywhere but a therapist's I know, office I know. is a, at this point, I say delusional grandiosity yes. and, you know, disconnection and all of that. My session with Ingrid will continue after this break. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So at some point, you're going through adolescence, you graduate from high school, Mm. okay? As it comes to the point where you're getting close to graduating high school, which for many people would mean sort of a logical time, you could leave the home. Were there any instances where physically he was coercive or attempted to harm you? Or was it this ongoing silent treatment, sharing inappropriate feelings cycle? I was close to graduating, so I felt like there was light at the end of this tunnel and was kind of hanging in there for just a little bit longer. And there was one night where I'm back in my bedroom, and he comes back to my room, again, similar to Vegas, standing in the doorway, but I'm sort of meeting him there. And there's this look that I will just never forget, where he is there, but he's not really there. There's this 
darkness in his eyes as though there's just a vacancy. Mm-hmm. It's, it was a very scary look mm-hmm. on his face. And with that, he leaned in and he kissed me, a very forceful, mm. not a fatherly kiss at all. And I was just honestly stunned. I think I was frozen and he pulled back and he looked at me and then he went in to do it again. Mm. And when he came in again, I pushed him off of me. I just yelled his name. I said, what are you doing? And without like any real reaction, I sort of saw him. It was as though he came back into his body in a way. And he said, I'm sorry. And he turned around and he walked away. And we never talked about it again. But I did eventually tell the story about Vegas and his confession and this kiss to the counselor at school. And she finally said, Ingrid, this is a problem and we have to call social services. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And honestly, it felt like she knew that I, she knew the whole story. She knew I didn't have bruises. She knew that he didn't physically assault me in that hotel room. And yet she still said it was reportable. And I was like, oh, that's that's hopeful. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. interesting. It seemed like she not only wanted to advocate for me, but she was thinking as a mom herself. And she's like, I want to advocate for your mom. And maybe we bring your mom in first before Randy comes mm-hmm. into the equation with social services. And to be honest, this is what led to what feels to me even more traumatic than Vegas, Hmm. because it led to a series of events where I heard my mom say, I believe that you believe those things happened, but I don't believe that they did. You're right. I mean, it, it, that that moment when the, where there should be that moment of recognition, it's the loss of recognition that is at the core of what this trauma is. Right. To not have that recognition happen in real time, right mm-hmm. there, when there's even another person bearing witness in the room, it is like an eradication of your very existence. Yeah, that's right. And it changed me forever. Can you tell, what was that change for you? I think I had some hopefulness, even through childhood, right? These moments, we're going to leave or, you know, I would see her actually inhabiting her own body in a way Mm -hmm. that felt hopeful to me. But when I laid everything out in front of a school counselor, two social workers, my brothers were there, and I genuinely thought, okay, here's the moment where she's going to rally. And the hopelessness in that is Mm -hmm. so deep. And Yet, I think like most children, (laughs) the loss of connection to a caregiver or parent is so severe because we're wired for survival through our relationships with these people that I literally couldn't tolerate that she discarded me, she abandoned me in that moment. So a part of me clocked it knowing that that's what happened. And another part of me said, (laughs) I will live the rest of my life trying to prove her wrong. Mm. And I will do it through a whole host of trauma responses, through perfectionism, through achievement, you know, all of this betterment that I did. It was in part genuine interest, but in part it's like I am going to evolve to such a place that it's Mm -hmm. so obvious that I am not the manipulative liar that you're making me out to be. And eventually still waiting, waiting for her to come out of this fog and this shell and back into herself Mm. to say, of course, I would never abandon my daughter that way. You brought up a couple of things here. One is that issue of hope. 
hope is an extraordinarily dangerous thing in a narcissistic relationship Mm -hmm. because what it does is it keeps people on the chain. That's right. A little bit further. You know, we talk about future faking. Yes. You know, it's almost self-future faking. Yes. Right? Yes. That, okay, this is it. The social workers, everyone's Mm. in the room. This will be the moment, right? Mm -hmm. And what gets harder is each one of these hopes gets dashed. It actually multiplies the level of devastation. Mm Mm-hmm. The other thing you said, and I'm so glad you said this, I don't think we talk about this enough, is in many survivors of the complex trauma, the narcissistic abuse you endured, they double down on perfectionism. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be more. I'm going to achieve this. I'm Mm -hmm. going to do everything. And we will see people, the perfectionism will get to the point of obsession. Sometimes we'll see disordered eating or even frank diagnosed eating disorders. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have the Mm -hmm. perfect body. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, some people will start taking drugs so they can succeed at school. They'll take, you know, stimulants. Like, I'm going to stay up all night. I don't know that perfectionism is ever a good thing, but Mm. it's destructive perfectionism. Right. As this is not who I am, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to have to show the world in this externalized kind of achievement orientation rather than an internalized simply, I'm not this person. And I I hope that for a lot of people listening to this, Mm -hmm. that they may say, you know, I was not sitting there as the the quote-unquote like sort of damaged person who didn't get out of bed. I was doing and doing and doing all the time. And that to understand that where that emanates from. That's right. Because in a way, it's that incredible things are achieved from doing that, but Mm -hmm. it's such a profound loss instead of doing it because you know you're good and this is what I want to do and this is what I'm going to go achieve this. It's it's this act of defiance that harms you. That's the problem with the sort of perfectionistic trauma response. And it just reinforces the wound because none of the, listen, if these things solved the problem that I was trying to solve, I would be like, fantastic. But the problem with it is that they didn't. And so now, if I have three degrees in psychology Mm -hmm. and I all the things that I was seeking out to solve this problem and I still have it, then, Romani, the depth of my brokenness Mm -hmm. must be so deep. Mm -hmm. And these things satiated me for maybe 30 seconds. That's Mm. how long they felt good. I was instantly surveying the land of what's the next thing that I got to do because this one didn't fix it. And so it's the flight response, right? Mm -hmm. We think of the flight trauma response as just the animal who flees in danger. Mm -hmm. But it also looks like staying in perpetual motion, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's the obsessive compulsive. Mm -hmm. It's the perfectionist. It's, Mm -hmm. And I live in that space. Mm -hmm. I lived Mm -hmm. in that space. I am grateful for some of the things that Mm -hmm. came out of Mm -hmm. it. But for the part of me that was doing it because she genuinely thought she was broken and stupid and unlovable, I mean, the devastation of that, Mm -hmm. I can't really even speak Mm -hmm. to it. I can't articulate that internal lived experience. It's it's brutal. It's brutal. I mean, I'm a, a fellow traveler with you on that. So even as you're saying this, I'm feeling this in a very heart, you know, deep way in the sense of I look at the manic quality of my life. And I, to this day, you know, when people say you're doing a good job, I'm like, I sort of smile politely and it's on to the next thing That's because right. it's all an offset to the internal damage I experience within myself. You know, right. Romani is a flawed person, so she does good things. Mm-hmm. It's almost like putting perfume on myself instead of taking a shower. Right. You know, the stink of my badness is going to come out, but I'm doing these good things. Mm. But it's never enough. You're never going to get away from that. So I think you're articulating something that's a real universal experience Mm. for all of us who are sort of hyper-achieving survivors. Mm -hmm. So thank you for so eloquently bringing voice to that. Mm. So now you graduate high school. Mm -hmm. 
What happens? Do you just get to move out? What what? Because ha- now you're 18, right? Yeah. The game changes. Well, I'm still 17. I graduated at 17, oh. but I did sort of figure out how to apply for school, mostly because my friends were doing it. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like there were these, like, there wasn't regular parenting where mm-hmm. you go, mm-hmm. you know, how can we help you grow and, and mm-hmm. achieve as a person? So I'm, like, fumbling along trying to cobble this thing together, and I applied to school, state school. I got in by the skin of my teeth, and I'm packing up my bathroom, ready to pack up my car and leave, and Randy comes back, and I literally genuinely thought in that moment, like, oh, maybe he's going to try to leave on good terms, right? Mm-hmm, maybe there's mm-hmm. a pep talk coming. <laughs> and he said, if you're going to go to college and spread the lies that you've been spreading around here all these years, you should go and tell him you're an orphan, because that <laughs> would be closer to the truth. And so I literally said, Thanks for the pep talk. And he walked away, and that was it. And mm-hmm. then I put stuff in my car. My mom comes out to see me off. She's experiencing the empty nest sadness. Mm. Oh, my goodness, my daughter's leaving, and she's crying. And did you say goodbye to Randy? You know, and I'm like, yeah, we said goodbye, you know. And I got in the car, and I drove away. And there was this real feeling that I had not only then, but many other times in my life where it's like, there's going to be a clean slate. Mm -hmm, There's mm going to be a—I get to start over. I get to show up, maybe be in a normal environment. I'm going to rebuild myself, essentially, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from the ground up. As Ingrid leaves for college, there are two things that arise in this sequence. First, there is that infernal hope that characterizes these traumatizing, narcissistic family systems. The hope that her stepfather was genuinely going to come and say goodbye and wish her well. Then her mother having this superficial sort of empty nest reaction. The same mother who denied her experience of abuse in front of a social worker. It was an absolute disconnect, as though her mother was playing the role of mother in a play or something like that. But she really wasn't invested in what motherhood meant. In narcissistic family systems, the children exist to serve parental needs, be what the parents want, or literally simply serve as props in the parents' picture. And what I ultimately experienced... (laughs) over and over and over again is that cliche thing that I brought myself with me. I brought my conditioning with me. I brought my low self-worth, my inability to trust myself. This is the thing I say that I didn't quite understand for a long time, that gaslighting doesn't just make you question the event itself. Mm -mm. It makes you question everything. Correct. And when I think about that, when you sort of go, wow, how we minimize this psychological and emotional abuse as though it's not that damaging. It's like he went into my psyche and extracted pieces of me Mm -hmm. that I, to this day, feel like I will never get back. Mm -hmm. And so that's who I brought with me to college, trying to show up in these dorms with other kids and these fresh faces. And I'm going to get a pretty duvet. That's a nice idea. But all the while... I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. My alcoholism is taking off full speed. I do not have the skills to cope, not just with these external expectations of like, I didn't learn how to study. I didn't know how to, right? right? So I'm just literally cobbling it together and only stayed for a year because I didn't have more money to keep going to school. I wasn't going to take out loans. I wasn't really there to learn. I was there just, I was trying to be a normal girl in the world. And so then if I feel like I couldn't cut it there, 
what am I going to do now, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. just a series of events that eventually I moved to New York when I was 19 because mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm going to take back that other thing that I thought he stole from me, which was a connection to my love of music mm-hmm. and to my voice as a singer, and I'm going to go and do that. I always find it fascinating when survivors of narcissistic abuse go on to pursue their artistry, music, dance, acting, visual art, writing. These types of family systems steal a person's voice. And being an artist of any kind is such a pure expression of taking back that voice again and having it be seen, read, or heard by the world. I always say instead of moving to New York to be a rock star, I got sober instead. Like that's basically what happened. (laughs) I just fell on my face. But that brought me to this really loving community of people that I eventually Mm. sort of stumbled into that started to give me that experience of being seen Mm -hmm. and even Mm -hmm. being seen in my time of need and brokenness in a way that I was like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really tolerate it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. my body knew it was there, knew that it needed it, like life or death needed it. But I ended up going to a different meeting every single day. Different 12-step meetings. Different Mm -hmm. 12-step meetings every day because I didn't want you to recognize me and try to have a conversation. Uh, It felt too threatening. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I needed to go and I needed to show up. So I'm just like in that directory every day, like the options are getting thin, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm going to a different meeting every day for 90 days. I went to a different meeting until I finally found one that I was like, I feel safe enough. Mm, I think mm -hmm. I can come back. And I kept coming back and stayed there my whole first year, and Mm -hmm. it was foundational. Like I said, it got me sober, but it really gave me this sense of a family that I was always seeking. Yes, yes. In a way Mm -hmm. that was profound. I'm so Mm -hmm. grateful for that. Mm -hmm. What it is, too, is that I didn't want to be seen. I'd keep going to different meetings. It's that how intimacy gets to be such a co-opted space when we're experiencing narcissistic abuse, especially early in life. Mm. And in your case, it was even more so Mm -hmm. because intimacy became a sullied space, right? Mm. Intimacy then was then sort of embedded, as it were, into an inappropriate sharing of emotion and feeling. You didn't see a normalized intimacy either between your own Mm. biological parents or your mother and your stepfather. And any sort of sharing of it was in this, again, in this inappropriate way. So, how could intimacy in any form be safe for you? Right. So the going to the 90 different meetings actually really speaks to, mm-hmm. you know, that again, what is what is a trauma survivor's, you know, sort of quest? It's safety. Where am I safe? The other thing, and maybe you can speak to this, I'm very surprised at how people are responding to this element of what I wrote in the book because I thought it was personal to me. I thought Mm -hmm. a lot of this was just personal Mm -hmm. to me. So I'm very surprised at how common of a story this is. But one of the reasons I didn't go back to the same meeting twice for so long is I knew that I couldn't stop drinking. And okay, maybe we have that shared experience. But I really believed, and this is the word that I used to myself, that I was evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I need you so desperately to save my life. But if you really know me, that's right. you're going to know yep. that I'm evil. Yep. And so I really thought about it when I was writing the book. I was like, Ingrid, are you really going to use that word? Like, mm-hmm. isn't it being a little dramatic? And I was like, that is what I felt, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm going to write. And how many people have reached yes. out and said, I thought I was the only mm-hmm. one that felt that way, mm-hmm. that I was evil, because everything that was evil about my stepdad— It's like he implanted it 
in me. And then my mom said, yes, that's where the evil lives. It lives in you. And it wasn't the whole of me. It's never been the whole of me. But a part of me said, Mm -hmm. maybe they're right. Again, that sentiment, and I was so glad you had written it that way, because there's not a survivor I've ever worked with clinically who hasn't uttered that sentence once. Gosh, that's baffling. I must be, you know, is Dr. Romney, is it me? I, I, I feel like maybe I'm the evil one. And I mean, like you, just bright light walking through the world. And I'm Mm. thinking, evil. And yet, then the fact that they uttered it, like that that's even, like you said, it's not the all of them. And they certainly weren't walking around the world Mm -hmm. with the sense that they're evil, Mm -hmm. but that there was even a part of them. And like you said, it's almost like this parasite that gets implanted in you. That's what it felt like. That's Mm -hmm. such a great word. As a result of these kinds of experiences. Here are my takeaways from part one of Ingrid's story. First, achievement and perfectionism are not uncommon fallouts of childhood narcissistic abuse and are often missed because who is going to pathologize a high-achieving child or adolescent? It's not unusual for survivors to put their head down or disprove the family rhetoric that the targeted child is a liar or too sensitive or manipulative. In Ingrid's story, she highlights her focus on achieving and being perfect, a story that is echoed in many survivors. However, there is no such thing as good perfectionism, and these patterns can culminate in compulsive behaviors, obsessive thoughts, rigidity, or even dysregulation. For this next takeaway, being from a narcissistic family system often means living with not being seen or not being chosen. And what we witness in Ingrid's story is that this got distorted to another level. She was often not seen or chosen, but when she was finally seen or chosen, it was a distorted, abusive experience. Survivors of narcissistic abuse are often penduluming between wanting to be seen and wanting to avoid being seen, which can be exhausting and confusing. And because both experiences were often unhealthy for most survivors, it can feel as though there is no safe way to show up in the world. For this next takeaway, Ingrid said something in the episode that is very reminiscent of what many survivors of emotional abuse or other forms of abuse experience when there are no visible bruises left behind. Ingrid was clearly abused above and beyond the emotional narcissistic abuse. She was coerced to share a bed and was forcibly kissed while she was a minor. But Ingrid shares that she grappled with what so many survivors struggled with. Was it abuse if there are no bruises? If the bruises of emotional abuse showed up on a person's face or body, they would be rushed to the hospital immediately, no questions asked. We must at all levels create this awareness with educators, healthcare providers, therapists, clergy, social service agencies, domestic abuse programs, policymakers, and law enforcement all needing to understand that abuse is not something that can be detected just by looking at someone. Ingrid's story is so rich and complex that we are sharing it across two episodes. And our next episode will explore how these patterns of narcissistic abuse affected Ingrid as an adult. 
Just because she moved out of the family home doesn't mean that these patterns stopped affecting her. In our next episode, you will hear how these patterns shape adult behaviors, relationships, and hopes, and how these cycles can sometimes feel impossible to break. Ingrid's story is less about whether you can ever come home again, but rather about whether you can ever completely leave home. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Devasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara Della Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.